So let me ask you this. Would anybody like to pray for us? We start. We're in a small enough place here we can do that. So anybody want to pray for us? You will. Go for it. Great. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to gather together to study your word. Please grant us the wisdom and understanding to understand what is presented to us and apply it to our daily lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Excellent. So, just real quick. Chapters 5 through chapter 11 have been what's known as general stipulations. We are coming out of that and now... Moses is going to, I almost said Paul, Moses is going to begin expounding upon some of these stipulations to give us more in-depth. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we are not going to go quickly through this. The reason is, is because as I've told you before, if you were to, to know any two books in order to understand the Old Testament, Genesis and Deuteronomy are the two to understand. Uh, the reason why that is vitally important is because Genesis gives you the beginnings and set the parameters for categories, how we know what everybody is. Uh, it sets everybody's pronouns in correct order. We'll say that for the contemporary today crowd. Everybody's trying to change their pronouns. You can now call me them and they. How weird. My wife said, does no one care about grammar anymore? It's like, I guess not. She's an English teacher for 13 years. But anyway, um, but God sets up, this is what everything is. And then in Deuteronomy, you find out that God's constant struggle with Israel finds its blessing and its cursings within everything it is told to you in Deuteronomy. So, we're going to start chapter 12. We're going to go slow, and I want to be able to connect what is being said to biblical events that happen later, or who would have happened previously, so that you see that he's not just speaking out into the wind. It actually has a connection somewhere in God's Word. So, chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. Now, real quick, this is God's greater goal for Israel being reiterated. How many times, just in the 11 chapters we study, have we seen, keep my statutes, my commandments, and my judgments? We find that over and over and over. Moses almost sounds like a broken record. And if you were standing there in the crowd, you know that we would be tempted to say, good grief, this again, come on. Can we not move on from this? What happened when they got in the land? They forsook his judgments and statutes and commands. And so notice the constant repetition is not just to inform them, but to also hold them accountable. When the bad stuff comes their way, the reason why you're bringing it on yourself is because I told you not to go in this direction. So this is a reiteration of Yahweh's greater goal for Israel. He gives them the land freely, but their continual presence and personal possession of the land is contingent upon their obedience. This is how God can keep his promise, but yet not excuse sin. The way that the children of Israel get disciplined for their sin, even though he's promised them this land, is he can have them evacuated from the land, captured through war, whatever it is, because he still brings about discipline. If his, if his promise was unconditional in the nature of, you will always be in the land, and period, that's just what it is, then what you would have to do is you would have to overlook the sinful tendencies of people. Now, there are some people, you know, somebody asked me the other day, I can't remember what it was from, are you saying that you support Israel? Absolutely, I support Israel, but I don't support sin. I think there's a, and the Bible makes a definite a distinction between that. So many people who are pro-Palestinian 
want to accuse Christians or as they call them Zionists and all kinds of stuff like that, Jews for Jesus, whatever. And they want to sit here and, and put these claims on there to say, well, if you're a supporter of Israel, then you're also supporting all the atrocities that they commit. That's not necessarily so. And to set that up as a false dichotomy. Uh, we're not saying that we are condoners of sin and because Israel is God's chosen people, they can do whatever they want. God didn't feel that way about them. So why should we feel that way about them? Not at all. Uh, however, are they God's chosen people? Are they indispensable in fulfilling the prophetic plan, especially in Revelation? Absolutely. And for us to discard them puts us in a realm that is called covenant theology or more, more properly replacement theology, that somehow the church has replaced Israel in moving forward in God's plan. And we're actually going to talk about that next week during the Sunday sermon. So one thing I want you to see, uh, a couple things I want you to see in verse 1. Notice here is the idea of carefully observe. Notice it's brought up again. In the land which Yahweh, and, and notice, watch, watch this, the Elohim of your fathers. What is he drawing attention to there? Does anybody know? Why would he say Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers? Who are we talking to? Who's the audience specifically? Second generation. It's the second generation out of the Exodus. What did their fathers do? Well, they walked away from the Lord. They sent spies in. Everybody remember this? It's a pivotal moment. And they said, we got the promise of God. We can go forward and take this. And the spies said, well, I saw giants in the land, so we can't really have that. Remember, we need to get this on the thumb drive, though. But the, the pictures last year that Catherine showed us, uh, they brought and shared with us about the giants. We need to get those and put them up there on the screen so we can see them at some point again. That, that was not anything unusual, but for them, it was a, the, the, what they saw before them was enough to get them to deny God's word that he was faithful to be able to deliver them. And because of that, they wondered until they died. That was their punishment on it. So now here's their children. And notice any time that it would bring up the idea of their fathers, either directly or indirectly, it is speaking to the idea of don't make the same mistake that the previous generation made. Now, watch this. Verse 2. And everybody has problems with this. You shall utterly destroy all the places. And I'm going to ask you to mark that word places. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks about why that's important. All the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, we're going to see examples of this that come later whenever you see the idea of the high places. Right now... It's just the idea of places it's used. Hold on one second. Okay. So, real quick, utterly destroy. This is a complete removal of all competing influences. Mm -hmm. I think this is extremely important to see this, okay? The Bible does not apologize for it whatsoever. Intolerance is the theme that opens these specific stipulations. You are to be intolerant of any other competing lowercase g gods. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, that's not to say that you won't receive consequences for making a statement like that. But it doesn't change the fact of there's only one God. He's the creator over all things. Everything else is a creation, whether it be seen or unseen. And when we talk about you shall not go in and worship other gods, remember, when we talk about other gods, lowercase g, you are talking about manifestations or idols that have been replicas of actual demons that have appeared to people. Or we call it graven images is how the law uh, summarizes that idea. Graven images are not just, you know what, I think if we piece enough of these things together, it looks great. These are actual manifestations of demonic activity. Let's, let's, not, let's not play 
uh, like there's something else going on here. And here's the thing, that's happening today. It's just happening in a different way. I was reading something about how this this thing, I can't even remember what it's called, uh, but these, these parties uh, that will be set up where there will be tons of crystal meth for everyone to, uh, to, to, to take. Uh, and then just for days, they just do nothing but have sex with each other. That's it. Don't even know who each other are, not using any kind of protection whatsoever. And they've seen HIV skyrocket in Europe because of this. I mean, this is all demonically motivated stuff. Uh, there, there's there's, there's uh, stuff that's going around now about how uh, people are finding sexual satisfaction in having abortions when a woman is four, th- four and five months pregnant. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a sick, demented, demonic society. It doesn't come from anywhere else. I mean, this is, this is stuff that people are choosing to do that ultimately has its distortion in deception of other gods. Now, real quick, Greg and I had actually had some conversations about this. There's a guy named Michael Heiser who has written a book called The Unseen Realm. It's a very interesting book. And he actually dives much deeper into a biblical understanding of demons and things and how they how they interplay in the biblical narrative, probably than most people that I've read. And what's great about that is he's fluent in Hebrew and Greek. So he, he is, a, he is a, a, a good scholar. I think he has some issues with some inerrancy stuff. But as far as the facts... Uh, that are laid down about those things. He's probably done more research than what I've seen. Don't don't chew up all the meat, but all that. What's that? I think it's H E I S E R. Michael Heiser is his name. He is actually the in resident scholar for Logos Bible Software. So. Uh, but anyway, we talk about early destroying these places. Why is this? You shall dispossess the place where they serve their gods. Remember, we're talking about demons is what we're dealing with here. You're not to leave any trace of it. And notice the three things that are given on high mountains, which are later on known as the high places. The, the whole idea was is if you build your altar up on a hill or something like that, you're closer to God in that way or you're closer to your gods in that way well they took that literally and so they tried to find the highest places that they can in fact if you remember that's the downfall of solomon's reign is the fact that once he married all these ladies he started building altars in the high places and they were sacrificing to these other gods the higher up you get the more that it is uh high mountains and on the hills so notice those would all be tall locations but under every green tree why in the world would they be going for hill hill High mountain, high places, and all of a sudden they bring up trees. The reason is, is what's that? Nature. Well, it's not just nature. It would be the idea. But all the time, trees are used as, an, as, as a symbol of fertility. And so, and here's what you find about a lot of pagan uh, religions and demonically influenced things. It always has something that you have to do in order for the God to accept you. We have to sacrifice unto this God to be accepted. And this is what sets the law of God differently. The law was never given. To say, this is how you establish a relationship with Yahweh. Never. Establishing the relationship with Yahweh was by utilizing the blood that was freely provided for them, and they applied it to the doorpost, death passed over, they come out as redeemed people. The law was always about how do you have fellowship with the Creator. That is not how the pagan gods do it. The pagan gods always want to get works salvation in there somewhere. And so they will say, you need to appease me in some way. You need to pray in this direction. You need to act like this. You need to say so many Hail Marys or whatever it is in order to try to get in us. Well, I've, I've, I've made the checklist, so this should be working now. That's demonic. Whenever we hold fast to that and hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, you marry those two things together. That's the definition of legalism. 
It's the idea that you need to uphold some sort of standard in order to be accepted by God. And that's just simply not the case. So you find that there's always a legalistic bent to it, and you always find that there is a perversion of sexually endowed God-given opportunity. It is always some sort of distortion of the relationship that's supposed to be having. Whether that's that's you know heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter. There's always a distortion somewhere. And so you would always find fertility cults, and you would always find, well, we're going to have this under this tree. Why is that? Well, because the leaves being green symbolize how God is going to be blessing this, or the gods are going to be blessing this, and so therefore we are going to procreate in the same way, and we're going to celebrate this through fertility. It's just a mess. In fact, when you when you see some of these gods, sometimes, especially in Bible dictionaries and stuff, they won't print some of these pictures of some of these gods because they're so demonic looking. <laughs> they're so they're so sexually sick. In fact, let me give you an example real quick, and then we'll go. We'll talk about a reason why this harem needs to take place. This absolute destruction, this utterly destroying, needs to happen. Look at verse 3. You shall tear down their altars. Now we can grasp that, right? That's a place where you go to sacrifice. We get that. And smash their sacred pillars. So we kind of understand that. You know, probably the, the modern equivalent that we could think of on American soil would be the idea of totem poles or something like that, you know. But here's the interesting thing. And burn their ashram. The word ashram. Burn their ashram with fire. Let me finish out the verse here. And you shall cut down the engraved images right there. That's that's chapter 5, verse 8 of Deuteronomy, a violation of the law of God. We'll deal with that later next week. Of their gods, notice that gods is brought up again, which is a violation of the first commandment, uh, Deuteronomy 5, 7, which are actually demons, and obliterate, that's very interesting, it means to blot out or to completely erase their name from that place. Everybody see the word place? Mark the word place again. We're going to mark the word place as we go through here because it's really important. Let's back up before we get too far ahead of ourselves. The idea of ashram. I actually did a lot of research in a Bible dictionary regarding this. If you don't have a Bible dictionary, get you one. Uh, and, and what I found is, is with the exception of some modern archaeological finds, if you can get an older version, uh, a good one is the Unger's Bible Dictionary by Merrill Unger. Uh, I think if you can find one from the 40s or 50s, if you can get one from from there they're really good sound scholarship that's when Unger was still alive and he was able to oversee the whole process after that happens and it goes through so many revisions as times go on you get some liberal guys in there some guys that have some weird theology and they'll try to start changing some things it gets strange real quick so uh, if you can get an Unger's Bible dictionary you can usually find them on eBay decently cheap get it used don't ever buy it new you know there's no sense in doing all that uh, but anyway uh, let's see here Ashram a pagan goddess of Tyre. She is often depicted in the Old Testament as being at the side of Baal. An object of wood uh, in her form and was worshipped in Canaan in northern Syria. In fact, some people have likened Ashram to a phallic symbol, if that helps get you an idea at all. In fact, it was, it was mainly just trees that were uh, cut down and cut to a certain point and then molded or sculpted into these images is what it was. She's often engraved as a nude woman riding on the back of a lion uh, with a lily in one hand and a serpent in the other. Male prostitutes were designated as sodomites in worship to her. So that's usually what you were dealing with. So notice when God, here's what God is saying. When you come into this land, get rid of the places where they sacrifice, destroy all the places that you think that, that, that they say is sacred, and also chainsaw down into bits and pieces, grind up, and that's how they would have to, dis to do this, is to actually pulverize these places to get rid of it. These demonic, pornographic images that they've all left behind. 
that's what it is. That's what characterizes people. Now, if we think for some reason, good grief, that seems a little extreme to me. If we were to look at, and I, my mind is going to escape me on this, uh, but I'm going to go for it and see what I come up with. Ah, yes. Uh, if you want to turn there just real quick, what time do we have? We can do this. We'll make it. Leviticus 18. And I only want to draw your attention to two verses that are in there. But if you ever want to read Leviticus 18 at some point, and, and you will recognize some of the craziness that's going on. We dealt with this chapter when we did the um, uh, Death Parade series uh, a little while back about the depravity of going on, and especially the, the centrality of homosexuality being considered more likened to paganism and demonic activity than anything else, is what you find. It's, it's not just faithful sexuality of a different nature. It never is. It's always attached to something else that is a perversion, and demons are always behind it. I know that might not make any of us feel good, especially if you have gay kids or something like that, you have gay friends, but it's true. It's never about faithful, monogamous, same-sex relationships. They, they want to paint it that way, but it's never mentioned that way. It, it, it never manifests itself that way. I just want to draw your attention to two points. Chapter 18, verse 25. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Now, everything that's listed in chapter 18 is everything that these people in the land, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, all those people, are guilty of doing in offending Yahweh. And so, therefore, uh, sorry, I almost said Jerusalem. The Jews are going to come in as God's disciplinary tool, even though they're not warriors. God is going to use their obedience and fight through them to cleanse these people. Why? Because the land is sacred land. God has chosen it. Now, notice also verse 27. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations. The word abominations means horrible things. And the land has become defiled. That's why they're going in. So notice that he summarizes in 25 and 27 the whole point of why he brings this up that they're not to operate in this way. They are guilty. And what you find is, is every one of these things going on here is all sexual perversion except with verse 21 deals with uh, child sacrifice. Um, everything else is sexual perversion. All the rest of it. So notice what's interesting is, is in a list of sexual perversion you have child sacrifice uh, listed alongside in a parallel fashion to be equivalent of it. How horrible is it to sacrifice your children? It's that horrible to also misuse the gift of sex that God's given you. That's the idea. So because these people have so defiled the land, and because everything they have is centered around this, and we see with the relation being to Ashram, we know that it's demonic activity that's behind every one of it. You destroy it all, you cleanse it all, you get all of it out of your way. Why is it? Because the demon realm is nothing to be messed with. It is not. Well, they actually like attach to the objects, isn't that right? In order, in order to get the demon to actually leave, you have to destroy the the object itself. Yes, yes, and I think there it was something about the fact that the that the male prostitutes that were used in the worship of these ashram and all that somehow they were chained to this uh, this device. Now I don't know that for sure, but I want to say that maybe I read that. Don't don't hold me to that. But yeah, there, there's. There's all kinds of things that is a symbolism that is a man. Have you ever talked to somebody that after you talk to them about their worldview, about things, you can tell they're just not thinking straight? Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you think that comes from? Is, is it just the idea of, well, I'm just trying to be radical and different, and so therefore here's my approach? Or do you think that it's that they bought into the philosophy of the world that Satan has carefully stitched together in order to lead people astray? 
I mean, it's mind blowing to me. What some people brainwashing out there. It's a lot of brainwashing. What a lot of people consider it to be acceptable. Yeah, I'll go ahead and tell you. Let's just let's just throw politics in here for for fun. You know who's going to get the Democratic nomination? Whoever CNN wants to get it. That's really what it boils down to. Why is that? Manipulation, propaganda. We'll spin it any way we want to. We'll say whatever we want to. And you can tell you can't please anybody in those situations. You can't please anyone. It all comes down to a popularity contest. How popular is this person? And so you find candidates are willing to say the, the stupidest things that you've ever heard, the most senseless and brainless things that you've ever heard in your life, just for the fact of hoping to get a contingency of people to vote for them. That is not what it means to be all things to all people. This is an inferior yeah. cause. So it's, so you see what I'm saying? It's convoluted from the get-go. And I promise you, if you watch close enough, especially the fact of how everybody's debating over abortion, it is demonically motivated. Killing children is evil. Period. It just is. And to think that we're a nation that wants to decide who our next leader is going to be that's going to try to perpetuate that kind of behavior, it's insanity. It's absolute insanity. So something to be aware of as you're, as you're thinking through kind of where we're at in our worldview and asking the question, what is God's view on this entire thing? Only he thinks correctly about all subjects. That's why we've got to know his word about that. So, so here's the thing. The idea is tear it all down. What does that look like? I want to take you to a place we're probably not going to see uh, all of this right now. We have 20 minutes left. We're probably not going to see all of this. But go with me to 2 Kings 22. And we're actually going to spend a lot of time going back and forth between Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, and Deuteronomy throughout this chapter 12. 2 Kings 22. Let's just do a rundown real quick. Solomon's sin in marrying all these women, trying to make truce with nations, whether he had good intentions or not. Understand this, please, because I've talked with a lot of people that like to reason this way. Good intentions that lead to sin are never good decisions. Never. Because while it was more convenient, it was easier, you find that a lot of people compromise integrity, character, holiness, God's word, and trying to make things right. Whatever Solomon was thinking here, even as the smartest man who ever lived, he wasn't thinking clearly. Okay, So what happened was, is with his sin, and he introduced all of these pagan influences, all these demonic influences into his situation, began setting up altars, and he did not end his life well. Unless Ecclesiastes was written at the very end of his life, which I, I can't remember, it's kind of debated as well, uh, because the very last, the very last two verses of that book are worth the entire depression that lasts throughout the entire book. Ecclesiastes is depressing, man. But when you get to the last two verses, it's worth reading. But anyway, when he set this up, you find out that God said, because of your father, David, I'm not going to tear the kingdom from you, but I'm going to tear it from your son. And so you now have completing influences of Jeroboam, who is, who is a revolutionary who comes in, uh, and Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. And the Lord actually splits the kingdom in two. And now you have the lower region, if I have my maps I can show you. The lower region, which is made up predominantly of the tribe of Judah, with Benjamin alongside. And the upper region, which is now known as Israel itself, that has the other ten tribes contained there. Okay? Uh, what, what we're going to find as we look on is the northern tribes went off the train tracks really quickly, and we'll, we'll talk about why later. But the southern half, Judah, had a little bit more hope. 
They had a little bit more hope because they had held fast to the influence of Yahweh, and they actually lasted a couple of hundred years, 150, 200 years longer than their northern counterpart, their northern brothers did. Assyria came in, took them over pretty quickly. I think it was 722 B.C. But the Babylonians came in down here around 586 and dealt with them and, and took the southern kingdoms away. So now in the midst of all that business coming down, you had king after king after king after king. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil inside the Lord. You see this over and over and over. God's divine declaration of their job performance. He gives them a report card and he says, they're as evil as all get out. We've got to remove them kind of thing. But then you have a bright spot. I don't know about you when I'm reading depressing things in God's word. I'm looking for the bright spot. And you have a bright spot in somebody named Josiah. Chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. An eight-year-old king. How you guys feel about that? What if the next president of the United States was an eight-year-old? Some of us are about to that point, aren't we? Yeah, can't do any worse. We're almost there. Those simple economic plans, we're going for that now. Get all that multiplication division out of here. We want some addition and subtraction. So notice it says here, he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, we know it's the southern corridor. We know that we're talking about the province of Judah after the split that took place because of Solomon's sin. It says here, and his mother's name was Jedidiah, the, the daughter of Adai of Boscath. Now you might say, why in the world do they add that stuff? Remember, liars don't give details. They're letting you know this was a person that really happened. We know who his mama was. Uh, we know where she came from. Verse 2, he did right in the sight of Yahweh. That's what you want to mark. That's what you want to pay attention to. Because if you're walking through 2 Kings and you're just reading it, you see king after king that is doing terrible, stupid stuff over and over. Not learning a lick of sense from anybody that did wrong things before them. It's just perpetuating evil. So now, Josiah is on the scene and he actually does right. It says, and he walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right and to the left. Now, immediately, you got to like him, right? Notice, how did David live before the Lord? That's how I want to be. No, nope, we're going to stay dead on. And what we're trying to do here with God, we're not turning to the right and left. We've got a singular focus of how we're doing it. Verse 3. Now, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought in to the house of Yahweh, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, of the house of Yahweh. And let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of Yahweh to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. In other words, God's house needs to be fixed up. Let's pay, pay, let's pay people what they're due for quality work. Use the money in that way to get this job done effectively and efficiently. Verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, now watch this. I, this gives me chills thinking about this. I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. Now stop for a second. These people had been without, at the least of what we know, the first five books of the Old Testament for a long, long time. They did not have them. They maybe had oral tradition spinning around. 
But they actually, when they were going through the temple and they were going through the money changer part, some fool hid God's law somewhere so that they couldn't see it. Now you're saying, what is wrong with those people? Now, I don't know if the Bible reveals to us who did, but I guarantee it probably had something to do with a king who wanted to do whatever he wanted to do instead of what God said to do. Because when you get God's word in front of people, it's a mess. And here's what else is interesting to think about for just a second as an aside. When we get to it, you'll remember this. In Deuteronomy 17, one of the commands of the law in specific stipulations is that any time a king would come on the scene and would be ruling over the people of Israel before they took the throne they were required to sit down with God's law the first five books the Pentateuch and they were required to hand write a copy for themselves word for word and when they were done the scribes had to check their work before they were allowed to move on to the next thing so in order to be a king you had to write your own copy of the law so that you knew it working through it verse by verse Mm -hmm. and then you would get quizzed on it to make sure you didn't fudge anywhere tell me a king who wanted to operate unrighteously did not hide this from people okay that way he didn't have to make a copy for himself either he probably knew exactly what he says he said we got to get rid of this maybe we don't know but here's the thing we've now found it okay now josiah is the king has a choice of how he's going to respond to this discovery Will he suppress it in unrighteousness, or will he promote it and reform people? Now watch this. And Helkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back the word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Now, this was a long meeting. Have any of you ever read from Genesis 1 to the end of Deuteronomy? (laughs) No. But can you imagine? And I think it's interesting. By the way, the priest gave me a book. I'm going to read it to you. This wasn't just any book. Okay? So here's Josiah the king. He's been sitting on the throne for 18 years, which makes him... 26. Well, not 26, actually 27, because you never counted the first year of the reign of the king in case they were assassinated. People might not like him early on, and so if they got rid of him, he didn't do well, they would get him out of there. So you never count the first the first uh, year of the king. So 27 years old is what he is. He's there, and he hears the word of the law for the first time. And notice what it says here. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, what happened? Wow. When he finished the end of Deuteronomy and he shut the book, the response of the king is, I've got to rip my garments. Now that seems strange to us, but why is that? See, a lot of people, a lot of people poo-poo on the first five books of the Old Testament and they're like, oh, it's just a bunch of heavy reading. I don't want to read Leviticus. Good grief. You know why you read Leviticus? Because you learn what holiness is. Leviticus is not just a book about priesthood. Leviticus is a book about what it is to be holy before the Lord and the holiness that is demanded to be in his presence. You understand that and you understand why Jesus Christ tearing the curtain in the temple in two and inviting all believers in to have presence with God is so significant and weighty. But see, we can't understand that New Testament concept if we don't have that bedrock laid from the first five books of the Old Testament. 
The first five books of the Old Testament will bring repentance out of people. And I think the reason is, is because we think that it preaches law, and it very much does. But I tell you what, the law preaches grace. We often miss that. God never stops being gracious. He's been gracious from the get-go, and that graciousness is manifested as you unfold the law. So notice, he tears his clothes. Verse 12, Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me. And the people, and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of Yahweh that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, you know what's amazing about this? This is about when our 27-year-olds start to come to their senses as well that their parents aren't as dumb as they thought they were. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. You always hear that. When I turned 27, my, my parents got super smart real quick. Yeah. For the they don't know what they're talking about. They're crazy. Oh my gosh, I wish they'd just leave me alone. And then all of a sudden, you start dealing with life and you recognize they were actually trying to help me the entire way. They were actually trying to let me know so I didn't stick my foot in all these bear traps that I now have hanging on to me. It's the same type of idea. Notice, go and inquire of the Lord. Why? Because the wrath of Yahweh is against these people. Anytime that wrath is mentioned in Scripture, if you were to do a word study of the word wrath in Old and New Testaments, kind of like what we did with dispensations today, you're looking for every instance where it occurs, you actually find that it's always temporal. It's always in the here and now. It's not talking about any kind of wrath to be suffered in eternity. Sometimes a tribulation is mentioned as a wrath of God. What we dealt with in Romans chapter 1, we talk about the wrath of God as being presently revealed right now by allowing people to continue in the depths of their sin, as heinous or as as crazy as they may be. That's God's wrath on people, letting them indulge in their flesh to find that there's no hope in that whatsoever. So notice, Josiah, having heard this, gets with all of his higher-up people, And he says, this is the reason why our entire economy is in the pits. And notice that he recognizes our fathers, our previous generations weren't following this way. He's thinking extremely, uh, uh, he's, he's extremely coherent with everything that's going on. So notice, we need to be doing what's here. Verse 14, so Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achibor, Shaphan, and Asiah uh, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Uh, now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. And she said to them, Thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says Yahweh. Notice that God has no problem using women as prophetesses. He's not sexist in any way. Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. And here's the reason. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to who? Other gods. There's the demonic influence. Because they're not wholly devoted to me, they've turned away to demons, is the idea here. That they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not 
B, question. In other words, they're not responding responsibly to the revelation that Yahweh had given them. And because they've forsaken it for so long, that's why God's hand is against them. Verse 18. But the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him. Now watch this. Thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel regarding the words which you have heard. Verse 19. This is a great verse. Mark the four things that happen here. Number one. Because your heart was tender. That's the first thing. Because you had a tender heart. This is the reason why we do 1 John 1, 9 when we before we get into the Word. It's confession of sin and reflection will hopefully, ten, hopefully tenderize our hearts before we dive into the Word so that the Word can penetrate our hearts. The Holy Spirit does not work well with people who have callous hearts towards His Word. He just doesn't. The Word of God has an effect on people one of two ways. It either softens a heart or it hardens a heart. It's never neutral. It's never neutral. So notice, a lot of it had to do with Josiah's tenderness that he came with. And here's the thing, 27 years old, we're we're holding out hope for that idea, right? So notice, because your heart was tender, number two, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that you should become a desolation and a curse. Notice that. Now now stop for a second. There's a couple things to think about. Number one, notice that Josiah responded properly. The law does its heartbreaking work as it should and so he humbles himself. But it's not just that. Watch the contents. Look what it says. When you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. Pause for a second. What did Josiah have in his possession? What did he read? What were the contents that he read? The law. The law. What's that made up of? Does that include Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all that stuff? No, that hadn't been read. That hadn't been written yet. None of the minor prophets have been written yet. The Ten Commandments. Well, Ten Commandments would have been part of it, but what was missing? What's the Pentateuch? The first five books of the Old Testament. Now look what he's saying here. Everybody watch this. Don't miss it. Josiah responded. He humbled himself. Look what it says about it. When you heard what I spoke against this place, against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. In other words, here's what happened. Josiah was listening to the reading of this law. And probably especially when he got to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30 when it talks about blessings for faithfulness and cursings for unfaithfulness. When he heard about this situation and he looked at his surroundings, the status of the kingdom in its present state, he said, good grief, God's hand is against us because it's exactly what was promised would happen in the first five books. In other words, he was able to use the first five books and lick his finger and hold it to the wind and say, I know where this is going real quick. Why? Because God promised it in his word back then. So notice, this is why Deuteronomy is an important book to know. Why? Because all blessings and cursings that happen throughout the kingdom from here on were pronounced in the book of Deuteronomy. Josiah hears this and he responds humbly to it and says, good grief, we're on a sinking ship. The only thing to do is to prostrate yourself before the Lord. Look what it says at the end of this. And you have torn your clothes, and torn your clothes, number three, a sign of repentance, and wept before me. God's word gives the divine criteria, and we look at our current surroundings, and we do a comparison, and we find that great grief overshadows us. Why is that? Because God calls for holiness, 
And we're settling for futility. Everybody see that? So notice what happens there. Verse 20. This is, this is God speaking to the prophetess. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers. Notice saying that to Josiah. And you will be gathered to your grave in peace. In other words, he's going to have mercy on your reign as king. That's huge. Notice that the damnation of God, and damnation is probably a strong word, the destruction of the southern kingdom is going to happen. It's on its way. It's guaranteed because of the perpetuation of idolatry and sin, demonic influence. We're going to do whatever we want to. Everything's right in our own eyes. And that's the way that's going downhill. But because of that moment in time where Josiah responds well to God's word, God can withhold that for a time, have mercy on that time period, and then continue it on later. Man, that's an incredible picture of grace. It's incredible. And here's what it also does is it also puts firmly within our eyesight the fact of personal responsibility in relation to his word. If his word says something, you have a choice. You can either be responsible and respond favorably to that and humble yourself before the Lord, have a tender heart towards it, or you can just become callous, bitter, throw your hands up. I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to respond to that. That's not true. And, and go ahead and invite God to, to have destruction on it. So notice it says here, And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. In other words, the judgment had already been made, but due to Josiah's faithfulness, they had been temporarily delivered. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. And that goes to show you what happens when God's word gets a hold of the head of a nation. Mm -hmm. Leaders speak for their people. You know, I, I I think this is important, and I hate politics. I'll go ahead and tell you straight up, I can't stand it. I think it's all a, 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 a nationalized soap opera anyway. But I think I think one of the most amazing things that the church could pray for, and we're commanded in Second Timothy to pray, so that we would have peace and be able to operate freely, is is not that certain lobbyists would get their way. I would say don't even. I mean, of course, pray about this, but don't even be so much concerned with the abortion issue that's going on. There's so much money that's wrapped up into all that garbage. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Not saying God can't do something, but I'm saying the main thing that we should be concerned about is the conversion of our leaders. The best thing that you want is the Holy Spirit reigning a nation through people. Yeah, that's what you want. You don't want just people getting better and trying harder and coming up with better plans and policies. You want the Holy Spirit reigning through people, motivating decisions because of God's Word. Uh, interesting interesting little story real quick. I, I, I remember Chris telling me this. For those of you that don't know, Brinkbush is a privately owned uh, corporation business, however we would say that. I guess it would be a corporation that's privately owned. But because of that, and because it's been family run and owned for years and years, they have the freedom to freely talk about Christ and to have biblical principles all throughout their uh, facility. They, they make no apologies about that whatsoever. And Chris told me one instance uh, where uh, his dad had instituted something uh, since he was the, the boss president over the entire company that one worker had that was in a high-ranking management position had some problems with, and he came against it and actually filed a lawsuit against Brink Bush because he said that they were trying to make him uh, shove religion down my throat and that whole kind of thing with the workplace and that kind of thing. And what was great was the courts upheld it. But I'll never forget what he told me. He said that when they were in that meeting with that guy and that guy was bringing accusations against him, that, that Chris's dad reached over to the business uh, to, his, to his desk, his business desk drawer. He pulled it out and he pulled out a little Bible here and he put it down on the table and he said, as long as this company exists, we will follow this book. And that was the religion pushing down your throat. Now, 
I don't know about you, but we need more of that today. Not that, I'm, not that we're trying to Christianize our nation. The, the world doesn't get better. Prophecy already tells us that. It gets much, much worse. But that doesn't mean that we all just need to get in line as it all goes downstream. No. Not at all. We need to be the firmly planted rocks that the waves crash against and say, I'm not moving regardless of how much you push against me. Mm-hmm. We're, we're founded on this. And I tell you what, because Josiah responded properly to God's word, God brought in his hand of mercy and completely bypassed 10 or 12 years where his wrath could have been against them, he actually respected the humbleness of Josiah, leading the nation towards righteousness. So what we're going to do is we're going to end here. Next week we're going to pick up in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, read all the way to 27, and we're going to see what happens. What did Josiah do to reform this nation and lead it towards the Lord? So let's, let's bow our heads, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. It's so great to see wonderful examples of how people can respond to your word favorably and lord you bring blessing uh you 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 look at the humble heart you look at the uh grief over sin and ongoing rebellion against you father and i pray god we would be compassionate people desiring father only for your goodness and your grace uh to to be promoted amongst us lord give us Uh, the wherewithal, Lord, the courage that we need, the strength that we need to be drawn from you, that we would stand firmly on your word. And and even though uh, a nation may be going downhill, regardless of what it is, Father, we would be firmly planted and we would consider all things lost because Christ is so worth it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. No, in fact, if you want, you can... uh,